Let me jump in. There's a, a lot, uh, lot going on in the world today, and uh, there's plenty of reasons to be negative uh, about whether it's the wars or uh, politics, domestic or global, or uh, inflation, labor markets, the whole thing. Uh, today, we're doing a call at two o'clock. My partner, Sean Lawless, and Dr. Ed Yardeni are going to do a, a presentation and uh, Ed is actually getting more bullish. Uh, he was calling for, he's called for 5,400 on the S&P this year, 6,100 next year. And in the last couple of days, has shifted his view to the possibility is rising of a um, of a very bullish run, uh, similar to what we had in the late 90s. And he thinks the odds of a productivity-driven boom uh, could really drive uh, the U.S. Uh, markets and economy forward. So very interesting in a, in a very negative world to hear a, a very positive view. We will be doing a recording of it. And if you go to our website, arsinvestmentpartners.com, you can uh, get a, a listen to that tomorrow if you can't make it today. So, so I guess in, before you launched that, did you see Palantir CEO at Davos just talked about how USAI companies are eating the world's lunch and will have 95% of the market? I did not, but... Uh, He's that guy's pretty sharp. He's uh, so in, interesting discussion. I haven't seen that though. Part to your productivity. So today I want to just touch on two things. The U.S. and Chinese stock markets are going in very different direction. I want to just touch on that. Then I want to jump into the uh, impact on uh, global supply chains uh, due to the messy environment we're in today. So let's just jump right into it. So S&P closed at a record high on Friday. The Dow hit a record again yesterday. Um, the U.S. is really climbing the wall of worry from uh, all the issues that we're facing. But for a lot of reasons, it makes a lot of sense that we're doing as well as we are. Um, one, we are really very innovative and very adaptive economy, but we have very low unemployment. Um, we are uh, made some big policy decisions that's drawing a lot of capital in from the rest of the world, and the rest of the world has some pretty significant problems. But just for perspective, because we think um, this is going to be a volatile first half, and we're going to finish the year on a positive note. We might not be as exuberant as Ed is, but um, historically, in election years, the, the S&P is up about 7.5%. So there is reason to think that this is a uh, a reasonable expectation to have a positive returns in the markets for the U.S. for this year, uh, in spite of the issues that we're facing, whether it's the budget deficit, the debts, uh, rising interest costs, and the like. We are uh, there's a lot of positives out there, and the economy is doing quite well. Um, on the other side, the Chinese market's going the other way. It's down over 11 percent. They are announcing them some moves today that may uh, inject. I think $280 billion in to try and prop up their stock market. As you can see, it's lost over a third of its uh, value from the peak uh, in 2021. And I think there's some real challenges that are going on in China that are worth uh, really understanding. One is the property market meltdown has been significant, and there's looks like there's more to come. Bloomberg Economics shows it going from around 25% a couple of years ago of total GDP down to uh, below 15 in two years. That's a pretty good slicing of the market. And a lot of Chinese wealth was in that uh, property area. So between the stock market and the property market, you've seen a big hole in the in the Chinese balance sheets. Um, the other challenge that they have, and this goes back to some of the 
policies, both uh, economic and political, that has driven a lot of uh, foreign investors to leave, and they're still leaving in pretty significant numbers. So I think this is another area that it's hard to get your economy and your markets moving when capital is flowing the other way. And I showed this slide last week, but this is a very different Chinese economy. And uh, I think the, the problems are, are real. And to grow your GDP, you need two things, productivity growth, which I think China's uh, advances in technology are coming along, whether the, um, the, the comment Mark made earlier about uh, the US dominating AI is right or not or plays out. I think China is uh, a very formidable adversary when it comes to uh, technological advances that are behind, but, but improving pretty quickly. But I think the real issue is a demographic challenge right now in addition to the geopolitical ones. Um, and there's some statistics out on, on the demographics that I saw today uh, from the uh, Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences, who was one of the early firms to project the population decline in 22. But to put it in numbers, uh, China's down in population 3 million people over the last two years between the uh, uh, declining births and the declining and the uh, rising death rates. Um, they're graduating about 11 million people from school each year uh, from university, but the births in 23 were only 9.3, uh, 9.02 million people. And this uh, Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences is predicting that by 2100, the uh, population of China will drop to 525 million from 1.4 billion today. And they're saying the working age population is projected to fall to just 210 million by 2021, which is a fifth of what it was at its peak in 2014. So I would say that there's some real challenges inside the Chinese economy, but I would also tell you there's pockets of, of investment opportunity. I think if you invest in China in the areas that the government has defined as strategically vital industries, you can win. I think there are opportunities to win in the private markets as well. But I think that the Chinese economy is going to struggle for, for uh, a couple of years to go. Shifting to the trade situation, which has been going on, and we've seen changes in the terms of trade for some time. It goes back to really the Trump administration really going after China very aggressively. You also have weather issues that are creating uh, changes in the terms of trade. And now you have geopolitics that are also other dr the drivers of it. And it really is impacting both businesses and consumers, but it's really going to impact, I think, the decisions that central bankers make because it's increased the uncertainty in this time because of the issues that I'm going to touch on in a minute. And I think that may test the market's expectations for rate cuts. And uh, the numbers are big. You know, the trade going through the Suez and uh, Canal is important and critical to Europe and China and, and the rest of the world. Trade going through the Panama Canal, big implications for the east coast of U.S. and for Latin America. So there's a lot going on here that we really need to step back and think, is it going to be resolved quickly or not? And it doesn't feel like to me that the quick resolutions are going to come in, in these areas. In the Panama Canal's case, that's a weather issue and a drought issue. Hard to reverse that quickly. And in the Middle East, it's just getting more complicated rather than less. So I think this is going to become a bigger issue, which is going to challenge a lot of the expectations in the market today. So this is from the New York Fed. It's the global supply chain pressure index that they see. And now they're starting to see the pressure starting to rise again uh, with the October attacks and the change challenges going on in the Middle East. 
So you're seeing a combination of, of effects coming through here that are really kind of uh, important implications. This is not consistent with where the market is looking at their inflation, their expectations for rate cuts. And I think it's part of the reason why you've heard some of the central bankers pushing back on how fast and how aggressive they might move. And just to give you a sense, the markets reacted right after the, uh, the Fed meeting in December, the markets were looking at 175 base points of cuts next year. As of yesterday, it was down to 135. And I've said on these calls that I don't think it's gonna, I think the market's gonna be disappointed in their expectations for Fed cuts. It doesn't mean they'll be disappointed in the outlook for the year for the economy or for the markets. So around the world, there's really eight primary choke points for global trade. The uh, number one you can see is the Panama Canal, but four of the other eight are related to the Suez Canal and shipping. And you can see what this might do in terms of coming up the works for the global economy, depending on how long it goes on. But it is already having an impact and is already raising costs uh, for consumers. So this just shows you the typical routes uh, if it goes uh, through the Suez or goes through uh, the Cape of, of Good Hope. And that extra two weeks just gets added on to the cost, but it's not just the cost of the transit, it's also the cost of insuring, if, depending on which way you're going, because costs are rising for insuring goods uh, uh, around the world. And now you add to it, the geopolitics is rising the cost even further. And who's getting hurt by this? Well, China, ironically, is one of the ones in Europe are the two, I think, biggest uh, impacted economies. Uh, Japan is also uh, pretty heavily impacted. But ironically, the U.S. is the one who's taking uh, one of the ones taking the lead on trying to deal with the uh, Red Sea disruptions when it really needs to be much more of a global effort. But we'll have to see how that evolves. And Europe's done their part as well. Uh, but it isn't just the Red Sea. The Panama Canal is also a problem, and the transits have been uh, shifting. This is for the, just the Neo-Panamax ones, but they, when you look at the numbers in the, uh, in the Panama Canal, this is a big issue for, as I mentioned, Latin America and the east coast of the U.S. Um, the numbers are changing right now, but the Panama Canal basically ships about uh, 14,000 vessels go through the locks on an annual basis. Uh, the uh, transit was cut in half. Uh, well, actually, it was cut. Yeah, it was cut in half uh, from the time the drought started. Uh, this month, they raised the number of ships that are transiting through. So now it's back up to uh, uh, about a third of uh, only two thirds of the ships are going through now. So you're losing a third of the volume, which can equate to about 100 million tons of uh, goods uh, cargo being put through on an annual basis. So that is gonna gum up the supply chain works even further because you have to rethink about the timing for getting stuff delivered, which is gonna potentially push up the cost of some items. And that has led to shipping costs spiking. And this is uh, the Middle East to Mediterranean is the uh, blue, the black line. The blue line is the Middle East to the uh, uh, Gulf to the UK. And you just see the sharp spike up that's occurred uh, in the last month. And I don't have it through, but this is the Baltic freight. I used a different index last week, but they're both showing basically the same thing. The real issue is how long does this go on and how long do the tensions rise and do people have to make more permanent shifts to their supply chains again? Uh, we will test the resiliency of the supply chain systems we put in place. So 
I said, there's good opportunities. There's always ways to find good opportunities and, uh, and find good investments in the environment. And I mentioned that I think there are some in China. I think there are some around the world. In the U.S. and the, the areas that we think are going to be most attractive will remain the semiconductor and cloud companies because they're at the heart of all the transition that's going on. Um, and we think we're not in the late innings there. The numbers coming out of the semiconductor companies were actually pretty good. The cloud businesses look great. And I think we're probably only in the mid innings of the cloud adoption and the and the shift there. And I think what's really coming most exciting is the productivity enhancements that are going to be put in places by companies because they're worried about the labor supply availability and they're going to be stepping up their spend in that area to improve productivity. And I think this is one of the most exciting opportunities to see where growth is going to come. But that means you have to pick the companies that have the balance sheets to make the investments that aren't using their debt, their their uh, profits to pay down debt. They're putting it to productive uh, spends to improve and then create new markets. So I think that's one of the things. We also see tech broadening out into every industry. And that's really the big change that's going to push productivity forward and help deal with uh, the issues that we're facing. The industrial companies in the U.S. have been major beneficiaries of the reindustrialization going on globally. So you want to own those beneficiaries. I think you're seeing some real challenges out of Europe. The largest labor union in Germany is looking for a 21% increase that's in the auto area. So if they're not having enough challenges with China potentially dumping a lot of EVs into the global market, you also have now uh, wage increases coming through that are going to put even greater strains on them, which I think is going to lead to a need for Europe to come up with some real industrial policies to counter the IRA and the, what China's doing. And then they're going to need to really focus on how they can avoid the outflows coming to the U.S. because I think it's going to be real and I think it's going to continue. I think industrial commodities is another hot area geopolitically, but also from an investment perspective. And while the slowdown in China and the China reopening, not how it normally is done, and I don't think they're going to make the big industrial spends because of their weakness in their debt situation, I think that's going to uh, open up the door for Western uh, commodity producers to benefit from what's going on there. We still like the energy area. This transition is going to take a lot longer uh, than it, than people planned. But I think as new technologies come in, that'll ease that transition. But I think the guy from Aramco, the CEO of Aramco, is on oil demand last year was 102 and a half million barrels a day adding another million barrels this year and another million barrels next year in their view. And I think that's probably right. So it's not a it's not a demand issue right now. There is supply coming on the market that uh, I think the supply issue is really what's coming the works up there, both on the fossil fuels and the renewables. The supply chains are out of whack and supplies demand is out of whack. But I think there's big opportunities there. And healthcare is one of the booming opportunities, particularly for M&A, Right now, we think that's going to continue, but we see the world in a kind of low growth, still uh, higher than before, but not aggressively high interest rate environment, which makes quality dividend payers very attractive investments as well. I think there are opportunities all around, and I think the most exciting thing is what's going on with the innovation that's going to show up in ways we really even haven't imagined yet. So, Mark, I'm going to stop there and open up for discussion. Sounds good. That's the one thing that always gives me a little hope. Uh, it's the innovation. Duncan. 
Hey, Stephen, I got two questions for you. Yeah. Um, with, uh, I mean, some of the AI technology that's in China, I mean, it's just astounding how the valuation differential, I mean, just, you, you, you take what what's going on with the quote AI, the AI favorites in the US and you look at the ones in China and just the pure earnings power of these things. I mean, I'm just wondering if you think there's an opportunity there and then slightly switching gears, but also big macro. Um, you know, it's certainly looking like Europe's gonna have to step up their defense budget you know, they've, we, we basically, the U.S. spends something like 12% of GDP on defense and Europe spends, you know, what is it, 2% or some number like that? Less. And de yeah, so deterrence has totally failed here. And so I just don't see how the defense budgets in Europe, especially what's going on with, you know, who, who might end up, you know, winning the election over here. Do you think there's a, a play in Europe if, if they go from 2% to 4 or 5% on defense, is there a way to play that and benefit from that? Uh, there are a couple of companies you can benefit from there. Um, but I think the play is, uh, I think the play is going to be, I think the U S defense companies still will provide most of the, a lot of the defense to the Western world. Um, I don't think they're ever going to get to four or 5% GDP uh, defense spend to GDP in Europe because of the crowding out that's going on from their other needs. I just said that one union in Germany, the auto workers going up 21% in wage increases. There's a lot of crowding out of spending and, and they're gonna phase out uh, some of the subsidies on energy. There's just so many problems that I think they have more problems than money right now, to be honest with you, in a lot of those countries. So I don't think they're gonna get there as aggressively as they need to. And I think this is like infrastructure around the world. Everyone's known it's been a problem for a long time, but you can't fix it overnight. And the longer you take, the bigger the bill gets. So they have to get started. They'll spend more, but I don't think they'll spend anywhere to the level that people would want them to, to make it a big return opportunity. Um, I think the U.S. companies will continue to provide a lot of that support uh, to the West. Um, and I do think Trump will push their budgets up if he, get, if he wins. Uh, but I don't think they have the wherewithal to move them up as much as they need to, unfortunately. Um, on the first question, I would leave it to somebody in China who follows their market more specifically. But I think just from a valuation perspective, I think the U.S. market deserves a, probably a higher valuation than most of the other markets around the world for a whole variety of reasons. In China's case, it's political. It's, um, it's political domestically, geopolitical issues and uh, outflows issues are making it less attractive in areas. So it, I think some of the policies that President Xi's put in place have made it less attractive and therefore the valuations wouldn't reflect the same. But that's a U.S. perspective. I'd welcome a Chinese perspective or an Asian perspective if someone had it. I don't know if anybody wants to chime in quickly. Otherwise, we'll go to Andy and then Bruce and Adam. Well, staying on staying on China, Stephen, um, we used to look at you know central bank policies around the world, but looking at China, it takes uh, a little bit more looking in the sense that a lot of their government debt is pushed down to local authorities and it's spread out. It's not all it's not all in one bucket like we have it. So I don't know how much you kind of look at this, but you have the public sector debt overhang, which they've been cutting, and the private sector debt overhang. Uh, has made the West actually look look very tame 
Uh, do you have any views or opinions? Because that seems to be a depressing factor as well. I think I think the local debt issue, which is not as easily recognized because they can bury it into each province, um, is a is a the major reason why they're approaching their uh, the reopening didn't work the way everyone expected it to, and it's because their internal debt problems are much higher than they have the wherewithal to address quickly. And they don't think a stimulus will do, will ju- they think the stimulus will just add to the debt problem, not solve it. Um, so I think they, I think that is the challenge that they have there. And I think that's why their policies are really more towards trying to stabilize the real estate market and then stabilize the stock market. Because if they have no place to put capital in the country, capital is going to flow out. And that's a, that sets them up for all the problems that they're discussing. So I think you're on to the real fundamental challenge with China getting out of their current situation. It's, I think it goes back to bad luck and bad policies. And they're paying for both. Um, and some of these are 30, 40-year-old bad policies. The child, the child policy is going to haunt them for a long time. And whether, whether the, the, the number is it goes from 1.4 billion to, you know, 525 million, that kind of, the cuts to a, a, tr- a, a billion, that's a slicing that's going to really impact the economy. So yeah, it's looking right now like China's looking more like Japan was after their big run than it looks like they're going to replace the U.S. anytime soon. So we might take on that. Bruce? Yeah, I guess you can't spend a couple decades in the military without putting sort of a military lens on some of this. So on the European defense spending issue, I suspect it's going to go actually the other way. You know, we've been investing in NATO, assuming that that, that the Soviet Union, now Russia, was the big threat. And I think we realize now the emperor has no clothes. So if Ukraine can mount a decent defense, then certainly NATO could could stomp out any Russian invasion or Russian threat in a heartbeat with existing conditions. Maybe short of shells, but we can get that problem figured out. The one that worries me more is China. Uh, because any time in history you've had a totalitarian government face some existential threat over which they have no control, the the logical thing logical thing is to attack and take territory and distract their people and and refocus the world. And nothing better for the GDP than a good war. So I mean, I, I, I and I think Taiwan is sort of an interesting side effect. But really, South China Sea, a lot of the islands in question there. I mean, we all know that that uh, China's been building their own islands in the South China Sea and taking uh, military control of those. So one of the concerns that I have is I think that the focus on, on the West, on, on Russia, is going to be supplanted by the military concerns and focus in South China Sea caused by China. And, you know, it's not a short-term problem, but it's certainly a mid-term problem. And the impact of that is who knows. I, I agree with you that China's longer term, a bigger issue. But I think if the U.S. doesn't, if, if the West doesn't stop Russia and Ukraine, I think you'll have a bigger problem in Europe that will mount to where we're now facing three wars at once uh, in three regions. And the West is woefully unprepared for that right now. Um, Raytheon just announced in, in their report today that some of the most important missiles to counter uh, the Chinese uh, uh, new armaments are years out from being uh, replenished for supplies. So I think those are real issues that we're facing. So I, I agree with you. We we need to keep spending more. And I, I would be a proponent of 
uh, for the West to step up their spend to stop Russia right where they are right now in Ukraine, or we're going to have bigger problems. But um, and I'm not a, a I'm not in favor of war, but in favor of stopping them faster. And I think you're right. You have to, we we do have to spend more. I just don't know that they have the financial wherewithal to do it. Um, I think the European countries are budgets and for the most part are not looking very healthy right now. And the 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 other issue that's going to really impact this is the elections that are coming up. And a lot of people are very unhappy with their own lots in life. And to hear that we're helping other countries out is not what gets people elected these days. And Trump's caught on to that. And uh, that's part of what his platform is. And it's resonating with some base, some of his base, I think it'll resonate in other countries as well. So I think that is one of the big issues coming up with the elections that we're going to have is we have to decide on how we want to define democracy for the world right now. And I think it is, and I'm not being dramatic, I think we're at one of those inflection points where that's what's at stake. So, Stephen, why is it that you're, I mean, I, with all the stuff you're saying, I mean, it's just such a no-brainer, Europe's supposed to just double their defense budget. Why is this so hard to figure out? They got a war on their doorstep. And, you know, there was some stuff in the press recently, I think just last week, you know, the Germans are really talking about, um, you know, they're, they're doing these exercises with 90,000 soldiers. Putin's basically gone on to say he's coming after the Baltics. And I just, I just, I, I understand what you're saying, that there's inertia here. But to me, this is just, this is how Trump is going to force them to do it. He's going to say no more money. You know, and I think they're starting, if you read a lot of the press I'm reading, suggests that people are starting to hear that message. And I think I think you're right. They are spending more. But the, the difference of spending more and going to four or five percent from when they're trying to get to two is significant. And they're not spending that much to begin with. If you think global spending on defense is around two point three trillion, something like that, one one point eight to two point three, and we're nine hundred of it in the US. And China, India, Saudis, uh, and Russia will probably make up another six to seven hundred of it. The rest of the world's the rest of the world for that. Maybe a maybe a third or less than a third. So if they increase their budgets a lot, it's still not going to be material. It'll help, but I don't think it's going to change the dynamics where Russia is going to be quaking, or you know, President Xi is going to be thinking, "I better not attack Taiwan." I think they got a long way to go before they get there for that kind of deterrent. And it takes time. So once you start spending, you got to spend it and then they got to build it. And then we have material supply shortages and others. So, Adam? Yes, Stephen. Um, I want to clar- uh, understa- clarify, understand what you said regarding China as investment opportunity. Um, and you, you mentioned sectors that are strategically important. How would you invest in that? That just seems like particularly those areas would would carry a lot of risk. Would that be through the equities market, through mergers and acquisition? How would you uh, uh, for the most part I would go on the private markets if I was going to go into China these days. And there are people on the call more expert. We don't invest there, but the government's defined and has every time they do their five-year plan, the strategically vital industries that they're going to support. Right. And they're the ones that you see them doing really well in the auto area. It's the defense area. It's uh, 
planes. They're trying to do all the things, you know, high, all the high tech things that move you up the value chain and the manufacturing process to be a, a richer nation. That's where they're investing. So the old model was invest in the low cost manufacturing with low cost labor. Now they're focusing on moving up the value chains and how to, and they're telling you which industries are the governments are going to support and which ones they're not. And I think if you understand that, you I would invest with the government, not against them in China. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a sound approach to take. And I also think in the private markets, there are a number of opportunities that they're too small to get in the government's way right now. And then you can make your monies that way. You don't want to be in the headlines. You want to be below the radar. You never want to be in the headlines. Um, the other thing I saw in the chats, Poland spending is is high. Um, Poland spending has always been high relative to their quota for NATO. There are five nations, and I'm blanking on the names, but Poland and Estonia were two of the ones that were always above their targets. Um, but it, they would be the ones you would expect that were closest to the danger were running at a, at a higher level, and the ones that were further back were running at lower levels. But, but, but Stephen, that was my – um, I'll, I'll send some numbers for next week. But it's absolutely exploded what they've ordered. It's it's off the charts. Yeah. But I'll send you some numbers. And they were always a, they were always ahead of the curve, though. They were one. But the they are they're they're figuring the border is going to be uh, at, at Ukraine, not not where it is now. Yep. They're planning. The Baltics countries have been raising the flag of Russian danger for a decade now, if not more. So that that and they've always contributed significant amount to the. Um, to their defense budget. Yes. Let me just let me just make a comment on Poland because that's when we're in Miami. You know, right after the yes, you'll see Eddie Roman was a colleague of mine at Ernst and Young. Uh, much as we met at our Warsaw event, he he's sort of he's not quite the Polish Stephen Burke, but he covers the macro markets of Poland. Uh, and I'm looking at you, Wanda. Yeah, we have Lech, Lech Walesa is. Uh, you got to be on the stage with us you like and it'll be an interesting uh d- discussion because we see poland as the epicenter uh f- for uh the rise of eastern europe right now and yeah. they're going to get a lot of attention and even in you have the deputy mayor of uh, city of uh Jesov, um a lot of dual use defense cyber um industries rising there so and, and Mark, a lot of the drones are being assembled and manufactured yes, exactly for, for the war. True, true. Um, Sanjeev. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I guess I have a question more shifting towards innovation, <clears throat> especially semiconductors. Um, so I've been talking to a few uh folks from UCLA who are uh building uh an X-ray machine, I guess you could say, that can look inside of semiconductors at the nanometer level. Um, and that allows for figuring out if there's spy um, modules in, in an external chip that may be coming from China, for example, or or other things. Uh, I wonder if you if you, if anybody's heard of technology like that and what, what role that may have uh, on the cybersecurity aspect of things. Um, uh, just in terms because the semiconductor industry is so big and, and it's going to get bigger and bigger. Uh, just curious as to what your guys' thoughts are. Maybe Michael Hammer's seen this. Uh, yeah, the technology is out there. So the problem is 
you can look at a chip and go, okay, this is clean, but then another batch may not be clean. Yeah. Right. So um, that's one issue. The other issue is um, we have to define what we mean by clean. There's placing capabilities on a chip, but then there's vulnerabilities in chips or firmware, whatever. And just to point out, um, starting from 2017, China banned their cybersecurity folks from participating in things like own to own and other competitions, collecting bug bounties and whatnot. And they also have legislation requiring their domestic cybersecurity companies and regular companies that discover vulnerabilities to report it within 24 hours. Okay, so they're stockpiling capabilities and this is actually something that should really concern a lot of folks because when we talk about war people think kinetic and that's not necessarily what we'll see yeah 100%. was that your original comment right no what's your original um i was going to jump in uh the discussion about defense spending one of the issues in the U.S. is that government policy for quite a few decades has been to, to funnel things through a handful of prime contractors. Um, and this has kind of stifled innovation, and it's also made it more difficult to expand capabilities. Um, and the other aspect of that, when we look at Ukraine, um, one of the things that I think should be a lesson learned is that you go through consumables much faster than people expected, than, than government planners and think tanks thought. Um, they never really expected uh, a war somewhat akin to World War II, where you had these artillery barrages, and it also has aspects of World War One where you have these relatively static lines and territory is not changing hands at any significant rate. So um, I think we have a lot of lessons learned. One of the areas that I've been looking at is resiliency and graceful degradation because a lot of technology and, and infrastructure that we have now is dual use. So for example, Verizon, uh, going back, I was at um, a fusion event that the Air Force put on. Verizon was sponsoring it and they were pitching 5G to the military. Not the wireless part, but the backhaul capabilities and whatnot. Well, that makes it a legitimate target. So what's the impact on civilian infrastructure if that's targeted and attacked. Um, people talk about, um, you know, various technologies, and they don't really think through what the consequences of adopting those technologies are in a larger sense. So just something to be uh, aware of. But I do have a question for S Stephen, shifting gears. 
When you mention commodities as an area of interest, are you talking commodities, commodities producers? Are you looking at how much they're hedging, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, we're focused more on the the, the couple areas we're really focused on. It would be rare, rare earths with uh, MP in the public markets, which is one of the two Western uh, producers that, that's out there. The other major one is Linus out of Australia. So limited supply uh, availability. It's been around forever. It's had several failed runs out of the mountain pass in California. Uh, some private, some hedge fund guys came in, took it over years ago and have got it right-sized and now we're moving it to production again. So that's one area that we're focused on. We also believe steel from uh, from a couple different areas uh, will be an, an important part. One, the reindustrialization that's going on to bring manufacturing back to the U.S., um, the steel producers are selling at very attractive valuations as well. Um, so that's another area we like. And then obviously, um, uh, and copper would be the third one in the industrial uh, side. All the things, and in, in you, when you think about it, they're all essential for the reindustrialization, they're all essential for national security, they're all, all essential for advances in technology. So those are the areas we're focused on there primarily. So when, when you mentioned steel, uh, an interesting thing I read recently is that Cliffs is bringing back some of the capacity in Wharton, um, which, you know, it was like a bomb hit there after the 80s. And I was driving down past there a few weekends ago, um, and I could see construction along the river. So um, just an interesting side note. It's interesting, the modernization that's gone on our steel industry over the last two years has been really pretty phenomenal. Commercial Metals bought ArcelorMittal's uh, properties and they've basically upgraded them to being much cleaner, much more efficient, much more better operations. And it's the type of changes that you have to make in old industries to become new ones. And I think they're doing it. I think Cliffs is doing some of the same things. And their cash flows are phenomenal and their price increases. I think they've had seven or eight price increases in the last year in for cliffs. So it's a very attractive area for us and not getting a lot of love because they, it hasn't done great in the last year because everyone thought when China reopened that the demand for all these commodities would be fully absorbed, but China didn't reopen the way they normally do. Uh, they reopened to kind of protect their debt as we talked about earlier. So I think that, that we just, we think these are areas that are really essential for what's going on in the U S and it'll, and then you get the rebuild that's going to have to go on in Europe and other areas. And are we going to source the steel from China or where are we going to source it from? So, uh, so Ma Matthew Friedman, if some of you know, is going to come from Ohio. He's a tier one supplier to GM and his family is a steel producer. So I get his interesting, uh, or he's up in Cleveland too, Michael. Yeah, the, he has a great the way, on the labor too. A fun, a fun fact, uh, one of our, well, actually a deep tech fund that we're working with uh, was at the uh, uh, Park City for the uh, uh, Sundance and Devo, I don't know if they did a, uh, is an Akron band and everybody was sitting in the Sundance with the Devo bowls on yesterday. So I wish I could have seen, wish I could have been there. Ran back to Ohio. Well, and then Chrissy Hyde, well struck. 
That's how I met Andrew Voss in Ohio. It's the heart of it all. <laughs> um, well, it's good uh, to see some of these shut down plants. Go ahead. Speaking of Ohio, uh, we will be there uh, that that uh, early mid May. It's the Columbus is hosting the uh, venture for the Angel Capital Associations. Is Joe Milam on?